Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Back in November, the iconic comedian John Cleese was joined by the internationally renowned psychiatrist Ian McGilchrist for two evenings at the West 83rd Ministry Center in Manhattan about the many connections between their different lines of work. On the first evening, which is presented here in its entirety, McGilchrist interviewed Cleese, and their wide-ranging conversation included pensées about the attention spans of goldfish versus millennials, the limits of materialist thought, and why psychiatrists make bad test screening audiences. The second evening, where Cleese interviewed McGilchrist, is available in a separate episode, so check with your podcast provider. And now for something completely different. Well, John. Well. I have a bone to pick with you. Yes. Um, I was reading your excellent new book, and in it you refer to Mel Gibson. And you say, the diminutive, (laughs) the diminutive Mel Gibson of unusually right-wing views. Well, I don't know about his right-wing views, but I looked up his height, and he's five foot nine and three quarters. And I'm five foot six and a half. And, I, and, and I'm, I'm, I think you're sizest, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling triggered. Well, I think that's, that's very fair, because I didn't know Mel Gibson was, was five, nine and a half. Well, it's much debated on the internet, as I, I've become an expert in the last... I, I, I somehow doubt it. Um, but my, my theory for many years, is, and which was sort of misproved by... Um, uh, Mr. Trump was that no one over five foot eight had ever really caused any trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can go through them: Franco, Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin. You're all little five six, five seven. Putin. You know. Putin is what's Putin? He's five he, foot six or something. Is he? Yeah. Is he really? He wears built-up shoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All these little people running the world. <laughs> That's enough of that. Enough of that. Enough of that. Enough, of that. enough gay banter. <laughs> so I can't remember. You were asking me how we met. I know how this came about, because I was coming over here anyway, and dear old Harper's uh, um, found this book of mine. And what's unusual about this book, from the point of view that it has my name on the cover, is that I didn't write it, um, which one you normally assume is people who've written books, but I haven't, (laughs) because it's just transcripts of talks I've done. And until today, I hadn't read it either. (laughs) So it's a rather mysterious tome. I shall check through it. You've had a chance to read it there, haven't you? I have. Yeah, well, I've been going up there 16 and a half years, and it's an extraordinarily pleasant experience, and I very much look like talking to young people because I think they don't get told the truth a great deal. And I like to, the, the, the original invitation to be an Andrew D. White professor said, come here twice a year to stir things up. You know, and that's a very uh, appealing. But when I came down here and Harper's said they wanted to do something to publicize the book a little bit, the next thing I knew is that you were coming to interview me, which is a complete shock. So I said to you, well, if you're really going to come, you really want to do it. You said you really did. And then I said, well, if you're going to come all the way from Scotland, 
I mean, uh, can I interview you the next day? And you said, oh, okay. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. afterwards. I think this guy has, has written an, just an extraordinary book, much, much better and more interesting than mine. Uh, and I think we should really be talking about his, but you can talk about mine a little bit. How did we meet? Well, <laughs> um, somebody pointed out to me that it was a magazine with a picture of you standing with a copy of my book. So, oh. And the text said, John Cleese is telling anyone who will listen that this is simply the most important book that he's ever read in his entire life. And I thought, well, that's rather nice. I mean, not everybody says that kind of thing. <laughs> so I, well, they don't say it until they've read the book. Yes, yeah, so I, I sent you an email, I think, and I came back from holiday... And I think I've got a recording of it somewhere still because I was terribly proud. Not everybody comes back from holiday to press the button on the telephone and hear, hello, this is John Cleese. <laughs> and, and you then said some very flattering things. And we met, and then we got into um, the making of the film The Divided Brain, which is, right. which is what we're going to be seeing in D.C. on Thursday. It's um, a documentary, what, an hour? Documentary, yeah, the full thing is 78 minutes, but there's a version for television which is just under the hour. But in it, um, I remember uh, we were in the Hunterian Museum in London, which is an amazing place. It's got all these brains, um, and brains of, you know, geniuses. Very disappointingly, they're rather more shrunken and less impressive than yours and probably mine. So, but there they all are. And um, we were sitting there talking, um, and I said to you, how, uh, when I started writing this book, I had no idea that it would eventuate. You know, sitting here, surrounded by brains, you, know, you, John Cleves, talking about this. How did it happen? And you said, you said, well, uh, you'll not believe this, but it was a Python lunch. We were at a lunch in an Italian restaurant in Soho, and I think you said, Terry Gilliam? Terry Gilliam. Terry Gilliam. Recommended. Terry this Gilliam. Book. It's the only thing I have against the book is that Terry Gilliam. <laughs> what, what you said for the camera, and it's in the film, was, and Terry Gilliam started going on about how marvelous this book was. And I think Terry Gilliam is such a fool. <laughs> <laughs> that I had to get it. I think he's so, more mad than foolish. I, I, but anyway, that's I'm a quibble. That's that a quibble. Yes, yes. He is to be avoided. I think he's a mad, mad, <laughs> mad genius myself. <laughs> he spotted something very important there. He did. And yes. that's, it's very strange. And it's very strange sitting here in this, in this uh, Presbyterian ministry place. It is an... <laughs> It's almost as odd as the Hunterian Museum. I grant you that. But I, I was once to... told that uh, the, the, the definition of a Scottish Presbyterian was that it was someone who had a nasty, sneaking suspicion that somebody somewhere was enjoying themselves. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I think P.G. Woodhouse said, said somewhere, it's never difficult to spot the difference between a Scottish Presbyterian in a foul mood and a ray of sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
But I, I, I think we want to... Um, you've, there's a lot of substance in, in, in your lectures over these years, and I, I found them very interesting. And I'm sure we won't have time to talk about all the things I'd like to talk about. But, but what? Even if we've got two evenings. But, yeah. but I've, I've, one of the things was I wanted to talk to you about the nature of humour. And um, there were two things that you said that I thought were very interesting. One is you quoted Bergson, Henri Bergson, who in the early 20th century was um, probably the most famous philosopher in the world and has been rather eclipsed since. Yeah. And I'm writing quite a lot about him now. But you quoted him on humour and uh, you said, I think very importantly, that humour is a way, I know you're quoting Bergson, is a way in which we, we, we tease people, bring things together, um, make people more flexible. And you're saying one of the funniest things is, is when people behave like machines. That's right. Nowadays, we all behave a bit like machines, um, uh, except we're not very good at laughing at ourselves. And it seems to me that laughter is a, a safety valve. And if you start saying you can't make jokes about any topic under the sun, whether it's the Prophet Muhammad or whatever it is, then there's a problem. And, and, of course, The Life of Brian, you yourself said, is not a, an, an anti-religious film. Yeah. It's, a, it's a film about the way people get religion wrong by taking it literally. Yeah. But you... But the, the you... Bergson thing is very interesting because, it, as far as I remember, he said it's a, a social sanction. You know, people That's laugh right. as a group in order to indicate that something is not... Perfect. Do you see what yeah. I mean? But um, in an accepting way. Yeah. Humour can be, as you yourself were just saying, um, teasing can be, I think it was, you said Robin Skinner made the, the yes. distinction. There's affectionate teasing and there's um, aggressive and unpleasant. Nasty teasing. Nasty teasing. And there's a certain type of racial joke which is just plain nasty. Yes. Do you see what I mean? But there are other jokes that are very affectionate, but, they could, but all humour is about human imperfection. Yes. Um, when we started the Pythons to write about life of Brian, we realized within about three minutes there's nothing funny about Christ because what he did was appropriate. And if your behavior is appropriate, then how can it be funny? Do you see what I mean? It's yeah. all, it's, it's a, it's all a, a yeah. humorous about things going wrong and inappropriate uh, behavior. Which they often do in the life of Brian. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but he went on to say, Bergson, something about his social sanction against, was it mechanical behavior? But that's right. When people cease to be flexible, yes. when they get stuck in some way yes. of behaving, that's what's funny. Yes. And I think that's a very good definition because I think if you... It, 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 if you uh, Robin Skinner said to me once when I was in his therapy group, he said, uh, the moment when I know people are beginning to get better is the moment Absolutely. when they start laughing at themselves. Absolutely. Does just, that, you just, like that? Just showing a bit of humour. Yeah. No, it's an infallible sign if people have been ill. I mean, particularly from psychotic illnesses. If they're able to see the funny side, what it basically means is they're seeing things in proportion, yeah. in perspective. Yeah. And it's the loss of proportion and perspective so often now, and yeah. the inability to say, to finesse the difference between something that's affectionate and something that's not. That, that seems to be lost. Yeah, I had this recently because I went into a restaurant in Sacramento 
about two weeks ago, and the fires were raging. And the woman who ran the uh, restaurant told me the following story, which I thought was terribly touching, that she'd had people in her restaurant that night from areas that had been terribly damaged by the fire. And all the food that they'd ordered, they insisted it was flambe. <laughs> for, for me, that is a for me that's a triumph of the human spirit. <laughs> do, do you see what I mean? But I immediately got criticised for saying, "Oh, you are laughing at people being burned to death." <laughs> No. no, I don't think people being burned to death is particularly funny. Not, not really, no. <laughs> no you know? But that's what you get now, because people cannot see the point that you're making. And I then sh showed a picture of the um, people, you know, these new coloured photographs that are coming out about the First World War. And I looked at, uh, you know, what used to call them British Tommies, the ordinary uh, infantrymen in the, in the trenches. And there were a whole lot of them sitting there, and they were laughing, smoking cigarettes, of course, and grinning, and just looking wonderfully cheerful in the most mm. carnage all around them. Mm. And I asked the people in the tweet, do you think these people are insensitive to the suffering around them because they are smiling and joking? You, do you see what I mean? Mm. You're up against a kind of super sensitivity now, which is unable to make reasonably intelligent um, distinctions. There's a marvellous moment in a film by Tarkovsky called Solaris. There's another dreadful film, I'm sorry to say an American film, called Solaris, but forget about that. But there's a wonderful one by Andrei Tarkovsky in the 70s, one of the most magical creations ever. Um, and in it, there's this line, in inhuman circumstances, you behaved humanly. And that line has really live with me, because there are moments which are almost inhuman, mm. but to behave in that human fashion is important. But to behave like a machine is peculiarly weird. And I, I wanted to mention the name Max Wall. Oh, yes. <laughs> it may not be well known to you, but you say somewhere, a, a stand-up comedian is putting forth a whole view or disposition towards life. Mm. And, the good ones. The good, the good ones. ones. And you were yeah. saying that quite a lot of British stand-up comedians of the music hall tradition just told a lot of one-liners, which mm. is fine. But Max Wall had this strange thing where he would start with very dry humour and he would tell various remarks that created a picture of his personality. That's right. And then completely suddenly he would go into the most absurd routine in which his body was apparently taken over yeah. by some sort of mechanical force. Yeah. And he did silly walks before you did. John. Yes, And they right. were, they're well, the only ones that I know that are as funny as yours. Well, there, there's this thing called eccentric dancing, which was a great vaudeville uh, yes. uh, entertainment, which is wonderful. People do all sorts of things, which I suppose now are being co-opted into breakdancing. Yes. So I, I think the whole question of what you can make people laugh at, my, own, my equivalent of Max Wall is W.C. Fields who I think is wonderful. I don't know how many of you really know him because people don't talk about him anymore, but he had a wonderful... Somebody once said to him about sense of humor, they said, 
Um, uh, he said, Bill, what's the difference between an ordinary person's sense of humor and a professional comedian's sense yeah. of humor? And he said, well, if you get an actor and dress him up as a very, very old lady and give him a stick and have him walk down the street and fall down a manhole, that'll make the average person laugh. But to make a professional comedian laugh, it really has to be an old woman. <laughs> Is that wonderful? <laughs> and he, he used to project this kind of image of a world. Just before he died, he had a, bi a biographer um, who was writing his biography, obviously. And one night, the biographer, one morning, the biographer went to his, his uh, bedroom and knocked, and B Bill shouted, come in. And when the guy came in, Bill was sitting there in his pajamas and his trilby hat reading the Bible. And this guy said to him, Bill, you reading the Bible? And Field said, looking for loopholes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful stuff. And somebody once said to Bill, they said, you, cannot, uh, you, can't, make, you know, can't make everything funny. And Field said, well, he said, challenge me. <laughs> and the guy said, blindness. So, do you know this sequence? No, I don't. Well, you, you start in this shop, and everything in the shop is made of glass. Do you see what this? <laughs> Bill owns the shop, right? And a blind man comes in and wreaks havoc. <laughs> With every piece of glass in the shop, you see Billy's trying to get him out of the shop and the stick smashes, you can, everything is just a mass of broken glass. You cut back, it's two weeks later, the shop is up and running again, Billy's standing outside like before and he sees the blind man coming and he greets him very warmly, takes him by the arm and takes him out across the street and leaves him in the middle of the street with the traffic. <laughs> And you can laugh at that because Fields has made him a threat. Yeah. You see what I mean? He's yeah. not someone anymore that we feel sorry for. He's this force of destruction. <laughs> and I think one of this awful thing at the moment with this political correctness is the idea that you can't make fun of people because all humor is basically critical. If somebody behaves perfectly, they're not funny. Therefore, the moment that you try and make somebody laugh, you portray somebody who in some way, like Basil Fawlty or whatever, is not behaving intelligently. And the idea now that you can't do that, I do a, a whole series of, of what I call, I, I say at the very, very beginning about the types of things that cause shock and how you can use that to get bigger laughs because if there's an area of, that's why sex or jokes are always, always get a lot of laughter. It's because the word sex, anything with sex introduces just a tiny little bit of anxiety. Yep. So that if you do a good sexual joke, then you get the laugh you would have got anyway, plus this little extra laughter that comes from the anxiety being released. <laughs> and do you see what I mean? And so if you can get this right, like my favorite moment in life of Brian is when they're all chasing around after him, uh, claiming that he is the Messiah. And uh, he says, I am not the Messiah. Just leave me alone. I'm not the Messiah. And a sort of Californian girl says, only the true Messiah 
would deny his own messiahhood, you see. And he looks at her and he says, all right, I am the messiah. Now, fuck off. <laughs> you know, messiah and fuck is very funny because of the, you've, yeah. you've, you've created the, uh, the contrast. Between. I thought you were going to, just to talk about the man who, who says, I was blind and now I'm healed, <laughs> and then walks straight into a pit. But that was, that, <laughs> that, right. that, that was in the life of Brian. You're too. absolutely right. He shouts out, I was yes. blind and now I can see. And he just falls into his pit. And he has just directed me in a BBC sitcom. Isn't that extraordinary? <laughs> he really has. Oh, this is the um, Hold the Sunset. Uh, yes, Hold the Sunset. Yes, but you... this guy has actually just, uh, just uh, written and directed it. Fantastic. So anyway, it, where though. are we? We're on the subject of how harmful it is not to be able to laugh. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, but there is, there is a certain type of nasty joke that uh, we don't want that. We don't want to be nasty to people. But just because a joke is critical, like if I say to you, why do the French have so many civil wars? The answer is so that they can win one now and again. <laughs> doesn't mean we hate the French. <laughs> well, maybe that's not the best example. <laughs> but in order, to, in order yeah. to do this stuff, you've, you've, you've got to be creative, haven't you? You've got to be very creative. And you are a very creative person. I think I learned to be. I think the one thing, actually, I'm talking to someone who knows more about almost everything than is really humanly possible. The one thing I really think I understand is creativity. Um, and over the years, I've kind of studied the research that's done, been done on it. And uh, it has slowly brought me from being a total product of British education, which is entirely left brain, which is entirely analytical and verbal. And it was all about clarity. Um, and it's brought me a long, long way in reality, in the way I actually work, towards your book, which is why your book for me was a kind of a, a, a revelation on, on the road to Damascus, because it suddenly started explaining things to me that I've wondered all my life, which is why are so many highly intellectual people not very happy, you know? Mm. Or very fulfilled. Hmm. Or very fulfilled. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you, you talked a lot about creativity, and one of the things I suppose that I would see from my perspective is that we have what the Chinese call monkey mind going all the time, talking, mm. planning, mm -hmm. directing that you do this, you think that. All the time, it's making things explicit. It's, it's sort of closing the argument down. Mm -hmm. It's not allowing new ideas or space for them. And I think something we both think is very important is people often say to me, so what do I do to become more creative? And uh, they want, you know, six bullet points of what, what they can mm. do before breakfast. But I always say to them, you know, the thing is, it's mainly what you don't do is stopping doing certain things and That's creating right. the space for something to happen. So this yeah. apparently negative thing of resisting the temptation to be drawn into doing the obvious thing mm, is actually mm. highly creative. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I first started doing um, the Alexander Technique, 
Um, and since then, I've tested this on any good chiropractor or, uh, or uh, the, the, the guy, um, uh, marvelous physio in, in Los Angeles who does the clippers, uh, one of the greatest guys I've ever met. And I, I, I've said to them, who are the easiest to work on? And the answer is always artists. Mm -hmm. because they can let go. Do you see what I mean? Just well, let the body happen. Whereas she says... Also then, they're sort of not centred entirely here, yeah, but that's in right. the whole body. In the whole body. And you... In, in and, your... they, and our artists know how to let go and let things happen, yes. because that's when stuff comes up well, from the unconscious. Well, right. well, if they don't, it won't. Yes. And but you the... know who are worst, for the point of view of the body workers, are, are businessmen. Yes. They are. They say it's like massaging concrete. Yep. And because they are like this, because they're trying to control everything. Well, you yeah. see, what I say? the complete opposite of artists yes. who know how to let the how to let the inspiration. Because I genuinely believe that almost almost everything really creative comes from the unconscious. Well, it, it does. It's a bit like you know, I can't make a plant grow but I can either create the space for it to flourish That's or I can good. smother it and deprive it of the means of life. But yeah. I can't make a flower and make it grow as a gardener. And it's the same thing. You have to shut up and keep out of the way while the stuff yeah. appears. Yeah, what, what I like with your yeah. remark in the thing about how you sort of feel your way into a part. So you, you, you're, you're going to act a certain part you don't know how to do it. You try it one day, it's not quite right. That's right. And then you say that you can sort of feel, you can feel the movements actually coming. Yes, And that's when right. the movements start coming, the rest comes. That's exactly right. And so some people start with the voice. Yes. And I think Olivier said he used to start with the, with the walk. Yeah. But, but when it comes, <laughs> it, comes it comes <laughs> as a gestalt. It's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. And you, and you begin as and you... And then you know it's right. Yes, and in, you start out and you, you start trying this in rehearsal or that, and you suddenly do something, you think, oh, well, that's, that felt good, that mm. felt right. And it's like a point on the graph. Do you yeah. see what I mean? And then you keep playing and that doesn't work. And oh, that works. And slowly you put together the moments that work. Yeah. And they come as a sort of, they, they coagulate as a kind of gestalt yeah. so that it's not just the voice. Yeah. But the moment you start speaking in that voice, yeah. the, the body movements go to match it. And do you ever feel... And I think that's what authors do. I when they're creating characters, that they, they so write stuff and they suddenly think, okay, this character wouldn't say that. And it's a very strange process, but the wonderful thing is it's almost entirely non-intellectual. Uh, absolutely, and there's a, a, a quote from Thackeray that's so good that I made a note of it for, for, for us to hear. I've been surprised at the observations made by some of my characters. <laughs> it seems as if an occult power was moving the pen. The personage does or says something, and I ask, how the dickens did he come to think of that? Yeah. So that is the wonder of creation, is that you can't know it ahead of time. That's right. You're giving space 
for something freely to arise that wouldn't have arisen if you hadn't created that space. That's fantastic. And people think that that's only true of the arts, and of course it's true of science. It's enormously true of science. I mean, Einstein said that his thinking processes, a lot of it was muscular. That's right. You know? And that, he's, and that sometimes he would play the piano and then go, I've got it. And yeah, that's right. And, it, and he, he's very typical. He's not an unusual case. Um, Poincaré, who was a mathematician around 1912, 13, wrote a book um, in which he interviewed 100 mathematicians and scientists. And almost none of them made their, their discoveries using the so-called scientific method. They practically all came as moments of insight, yeah. aha moments. Yeah. Um, out of the blue. Out of the blue. But sometimes and suddenly I'm... saw an analogy. Yes, that's right. And sort of quite out of the blue because the ground had to be prepared. Oh, so you've often got to months prepare the of ground. work. Yeah. And you know, you have to slave away and try, but it's never while you're trying that it comes. It's when you stop trying. It's a bit yeah. like the you know, tip of the tongue, you know, you can't yeah. remember it, you stop and then suddenly you remember, you know. Uh, yeah. And it's very important people realise that because they don't understand that's how creativity works. And it's important socially in terms of science. Because um, if you come up against the bureaucratic mind, which oh. I've almost been studying in the last few months, <laughs> working for the BBC, um, <clears throat> these people want precision and clarity. Uh. You see what I mean? That, that's the only thing that matters, is that everything should be predicted and forecast, and we should stick to things. Do you see what I mean? Mm. And I had a wonderful call today from the director, the, um, uh, Sandy, I'm very fond of him, and he said, can you do ADR, additional dialogue recording, tomorrow? And I said, well, it's my last day in New York. I've I said, does it have to be tomorrow? And, and he said, well, we have to close the, 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 the show down on Friday. And I said, is this the Christmas show we're talking about? And he said, oh, yes. And I said, what, what year, what date is, is, is Christmas this year? <laughs> I was just pointing out there's about six weeks to go. But some bureaucrat had decided yeah. somewhere that it had to be finished by this particular Friday. Why? Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Because it made the bureaucrat feel that he'd done his job. That's what his job is, making sure everything happens exactly uncreatively and that no input from the unconscious can possibly change this because then he'd lose his clarity and his sense of control. Right? Well, we mustn't talk too much about this tonight. But, well, this is, the, but, the, but this is why we're together, Ian, <laughs> because we find the same thing. I'm coming from comedy and trying to write, and the first time I noticed it, it was at Cambridge, I used to write sketches with Graham Chapman, and I'd sit there and I'd do the preparatory work, the point you made just now, I'd sit there trying to think how to end the sketch. In the morning, I'd wake up, make myself a cup of coffee, sit at the desk, and I'd look at it and I'd think, well, I'll do that. And I thought, why couldn't I do it last night? And this morning I get it in 90 seconds. And I came to the conclusion the only possibility was that my mind had been working on it when I was asleep. But of course now, but to me that was a revelation. And then I did another thing. I wrote a script with Graham 
and lost it because I am sort of a, a what did I say last night? I'm, I'm an absent minded professor but without the intellect. Do you see what I'm <laughs> And I lost it and I thought I was very embarrassed and I uh, knew Gray would be cross. So I rewrote the sketch from memory and then I found the original and compared them. And the one I'd written from memory was better. Yeah, yeah. The phrasing was better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, so again, I, even after I'd written the thing, my mind was, you see? So you begin to realize what extraordinary powers mm. the unconscious has. That's the way I looked at it. And my favorite psychological experiment was they got some people in and they sat them down and they showed them on a screen Chinese ideograms. And then they had them back next week and they said, we're going to show you some new ones and some of the ones you saw last week. Mm. Uh, we want you to tell us which ones you saw last week. And the results were hopeless, absolutely hopeless, chance. So they then said to people, come in again and we'll show you some more ideograms. And then the next week they said, come back. And they said to the people, we're going to show you some ideograms. Some of them you saw last week, some are new. And when you look at them, you will find sometimes that you kind of quite like one. You prefer one to another, uh, you know. And uh, they did this and they discovered that uh, they did prefer one some, uh, to others. And the ones they preferred were the ones they'd seen the previous week. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the unconscious has got this astonishing power, mm. but it's tricky to work with because you can't say to the brain, which did you see last week? You have to say, which ones do you like better? Much as the BBC would like you to be creative to a schedule, you can't do it. <laughs> no. And, and the, the, flex, the, the need for certainty and the need for precision and the need of closing down and not changing anything is, is typically driven by the left hemisphere's job is to close down on a certainty. Yeah. And I always say, well, you should be as clear and as precise as you can be, and no more. Yeah, that's right. And not a whit more. And at the moment that you first have an idea, you mustn't, I always say this, you've got your two sides. You've got your creative side, and you've got the logical critical side. Mm. And you mustn't bring the logical critical side in until the creative one has had a chance to really shape the idea. Exactly. Because if you start trying to shoot it down straight away, yeah. you'll shoot it down because a very newborn idea is a very weak and feeble thing. You've got to let it grow a little. You've bit. got to do things in the right order. Yeah. 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 And, and that's, you, you have a whole lecture actually on um, the book that I think also is very good by um, uh, a colleague and friend, Guy Claxton, called, um, uh, what is he called? Hairbrained Tortoise Mind. Hairbrained. You see, I'm very interested because you know Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky just, just produced the book called Fast and Slow Thinking. Yeah. And I'm trying to integrate this because this stuff all completely fascinates me but sometimes you kind of think well that's slicing it that way and that's slicing it that way and how do you fit them together do you see what I mean well yeah we can talk about that but I mean in effect and Kahneman and I agree about this his fast and slow is not right and left no it's 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 as I, I'm cutting the brain that way he's cutting the brain that way right and really it's you see, there are various kinds of fast and slow thinking. Typical of the left hemisphere 
is that it jumps to conclusions. It goes, I recognize that as one yeah, of those. Yeah. It loves the familiar, get it put into a category, job done. So it tends to be much more, you know, quick and dirty. It, which, which what? Quick and dirty. Yes. Which surprises some people because they think, oh, surely that's the right hemisphere. No, the jumping to conclusions quick and dirty one is the left hemisphere. And Ramachandran calls the right hemisphere the devil's advocate because it's the one that's going, well, no, but it doesn't actually necessarily fit that pattern. Yeah. And yet slow thinking can also be right or left because quick, some quick thinking can be intuitive and the, the right hemisphere is much better than that. You, somewhere you talk about with Stephen Sisi. Uh, yes, Chet Stephen Sisi. Chechi, as I would call him, but Sisi, I believe. Yeah. Um, he he um, did these experiments in which, um, and they've been replicated many times, that, that when people are able to do it instantly, they're more likely to be right than when they over-consider it. Yeah. So then that would be right hemisphere. But doing things slowly can be both, too, because the left hemisphere is slow when it's analytical, and the right hemisphere is slow when it's saying devil's advocate. It may not be what you want to jump into. So yeah. it, it doesn't cut the same way. Yeah, that, that's right. But it's, uh, you, there was a very interesting experiment done. At, uh, um, I'm trying to think what the university was. It was in, in Holland. And they were interested in, in the way that people um, uh, incorporated stereotypes in their thinking. And the um, people taking part in the experiment were asked to be jurors. Do you see what I mean? Then yeah. they'd be given evidence and so on. And what they found was that they were remarkably unprejudiced in the yeah. sense that they really did not make the decisions based on stereotype no, no. unless the decision was hurried. Yeah. yeah. And that's because when you're hurried, your left hemisphere takes over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and these have been repeated in Britain. Um, studies have been done on decisions by juries um, in cases which are played out in which the victim, or, sorry, the, the accused is either black or white with juries of different uh, shades of, of color. And it turns out that actually white juries tend, if anything, to be more lenient to people who are not white. Oh. So the stereotypes are not necessarily right. Um, so it's all, it, it's an, it's but you, but the, 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 there's an element here which is that there are sometimes when, like somebody once said, if you're attacking a machine gun nest, this is not the moment to admire the scenery. No. Or to sort of see the funny side of what you're doing. Oh, it's a good one for that. Yeah, yes, for that, <laughs> those kind of urgent tasks. That's the stereotypical thing. Who was the Canadian neurologist who said uh, neurons that uh, fire together, wire together? Do you know this guy? Oh, things that fire together, wire together, yes. Um, tip of the tongue phenomenon, but yes. Yeah, yes. we'll get it in a moment. But yes. what he basically said was if... He gave a lovely analogy. He said, imagine that you've hired a house for the summer, and you go out in the back garden, and the grass is that long. And you look, and there's a little hut, garden hut over there. Well, what do you do? You make your way through to the hut. And when you've had a look in the hut, you come back the same way. <laughs> and the next day, when yeah. you come out, you don't walk over there. You walk mm. through this little path you've created. Yes. And that's, in a sense, what happens with neurons. Yeah. So what you can have to do is, and it's interesting that it's getting out of a rut. 
yeah. old-fashioned yeah. phrase. Well, but the only way you can do that is to get into the right brain. Well, that's right. And the rut is a better image because the path you can always stray off. But the point is that once it starts to become a rut, yeah. it takes a lot of effort to get out of that rut into anywhere else. And if you only partly do, it will slip back in. So uh, priming neural pathways uh, so that they fire, they will eventually fire automatically. Yes. So, so you, you have to do quite a bit of effort. They fire together, they wire together. It's a wonderful way of putting it. It is a good way it. of putting it. But fortunately, thanks to our right frontal lobe, we are able to be more flexible and to think, no, we don't have to do it that way. We can do it another way. But that's if our culture allows it. And what I noticed in American culture, the first time that I worked with Jamie Lee Curtis, um, Fish Called Wanda, um, I'd asked Jamie it's a question. It's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Why did I know? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody said, you finally got the goal, didn't you? <laughs> Not an experience I'd ever had before, but as I said, it was only because I wrote it. <laughs> the thing about Jamie was that you ask her a question, she'd give an immediate answer, and then okay. an hour later she'd come back and say, actually, da -da -da -da, and give a different answer. And then in the evening she'd call you and change her mind again. And I said to her, why don't you just um, think about it a bit before you decide? <laughs> and, and I realized it was a cultural thing that people want to be thought to be decisive. Mm -hmm. You know, and the great research on creativity by a guy, McKinnon. Yeah. Yeah, Berkeley, 60s uh, and 70s. Was he Berkeley? Yeah. Yeah. And Somewhere he, over this side of the He moment. did creativity on professions rather than on artists, and he found that the two things that characterized uh, the creative artists, he was particularly interested in architects, were um, one, they knew how to play. Mm -hmm. And the other is they took much longer to make their minds up. Yeah. Now that's countercultural. Mm. Mm. And it's also, it's also a very healthy habit in life not to give snap answers. Yeah. In fact, a lot of my patients would be very stressed because they always found themselves agreeing to things and then wishing they hadn't. Um, and I used to say to them, there's a very good thing to say is, I'll have to think about that. Yeah. Well, you say, and, and the thing is that you can then say anything you like after you've had a chance to, uh, yeah. and you can say nothing. And, and you say, I'm still thinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. You... Oh, uh, sorry, what was I just thinking? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll come, it'll, it'll, come, I, I... it'll come back. Oh, what I was saying was <laughs> that a lot of this wisdom used to be in the old culture. Yeah. Uh, because uh, my, my dad would say, I'll just sleep on it. Yeah. Everybody immediately recognizes that, but you, there's an enormous amount of wisdom in that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I used to write these uh, biz management training films, and the best, seriously, the best thing I ever learned from writing them, which I did over quite a long period of time, was what somebody once told me about taking decisions, which is that any time you have to take a decision, the first question to ask is, when does it have to be taken? Yeah. And that's the first question. Yeah. And then you don't take it until then, because you might get new information, or, creatively speaking, you may get some improved ideas. You but people think... rush to do it because they don't like the insecurity of not having it resolved. 
Oh, completely. The inability to live with uncertainty. Yes. You, you say somewhere in your lectures that it's a sign of mental health, and I would totally agree with you. To be able to live with uncertainty, to be able to give room for things that cannot be closed down now. Yeah. And that rich ambiguity in which you don't share off all the, the other meanings to which whatever you're dealing is relating is very important because out of that richness, something will come that at the moment you, you, you'll not make the... the I right also sense. find, and I think this is, uh, this is purely anecdotal, that when I postpone decisions until they have to be made, very frequently the decision becomes easier and easier to make. Well, yeah. Because what happens is that things change and, yes. and one becomes much better than the other. But you're not taking time because you're worrying about it all the time. You're taking time because you're not worrying about yeah. it. That's the point. Yeah. And the more you worry about things and the more you strive to get them right, the more you engage the narrow focus to the detail of the left hemisphere. And you, you, you had a conversation, a long conversation, which is a very interesting part of the, of the book um, with Stephen Sisi. Um, and one of them is about, and it, there's a story in it, which I, you know, I didn't know. Um, I know his work, but I didn't know this thing, about a woman who was raped. Oh. And while she was being raped, she was very brave, she thought, I'm going to look at this man's face so that I will recognize him anywhere mm. afterwards. And effectively, afterwards, she produced an amazingly good identikit picture. And the police were so impressed by her recall and by the ability to make this thing fit that they were pretty sure that they'd got the right man. And on that basis, the guy was was put in jail, wasn't that's he? That's right. For, I think, about 10 years. Yes. Although right. he protested, he wasn't the person. And they, they, they put a, what are they called, a parade, you know. And police lineup. Police lineup. And then, and once again, she got this, this person. Anyway, later, 10 years on, they'd got DNA testing. And in prison, the cellmate of the guy who was wrongly imprisoned boasted that he'd been the rapist. And they brought him back out and the, showed them to the woman who'd been raped. Was it this man or was it the man who boasted he raped you? Looked at the man who boasted and said, never seen him before in my life. Yeah. But the DNA proved that he was actually the rapist. Now, th that's a long story and an odd story, but the payoff is that she didn't take in the gestalt, the overall look of the face. And what Cece's research shows time and again is that the way you, you take in a face is to take in the whole of it. If you start saying he's got a kind of slightly hooked nose and he's got thin lips and he's got this, you, you, you'll get it wrong. You, don't, you can't build it up again. So the point. precise system that the police used for decades, the yeah. identikit system, yeah. was based on a totally false premise. Well, I think the point Cece was making is that it depends. What was special about this woman was that she was, she was so on the ball yeah. and so brave that she thought, I'm going to take in the details. Of this guy's I'm face. really going to remember the details. Um, but she didn't remember the whole. And, and that's, that is pretty interesting. Yeah. He's a... I know about this guy from, do you know this research he did? He's, he's famous to me. He did some research with a chap called Peters, 
C.C. and Peters. And what they did was they took 18 papers that had been published in top-end science journals, Nature, Science, Scientific American, all these things. Anyway, they, they took the, these papers and they retyped them and they put on the head, made up names from podunk places somewhere in the Midwest. And they sent them back to the same journals that had published them previously. And only one actually spotted that they'd already published it, so they rejected it. But the, the reviewers in the 17 other cases were, damn it, this could never be published. And it's so bad, there's no point in even sending it back for emendation. And these were the ones that had, been, had prestigious names from top universities and had got into the top journals. So that, I thought, was a And for two years, he was, he was more or less a, a, a pariah. Mm. And, and people threatened him with legal action. Extraordinary how people then see themselves. Anyway. Well, I do a speech now called Why There Is No Hope. And <laughs> Why There Is No Hope. Why There Is No Hope. Oh, yes. And uh, <laughs> it cheers people up. because <laughs> I, I do point out to them there is absolutely no hope that we will ever live in a proper, kind, intelligent, well-balanced society. And that you must just forget about that and then live a little guerrilla life in the middle of it without being too affected by it. <laughs> but an enormous amount of it is this business that so few people actually know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And, I, I, you know, it's funny, but it's also true. And when I go over my professional experience, I, uh, I, uh, it's astonishing. I mean, after we'd done about four Monty Pythons, the director got into an elevator with the, with the head of the department, and the head of the department said, what is this Python rubbish? It's, it's absolutely awful. It's not funny at all. Is it supposed to be funny? This is the guy who was in charge <laughs> of the department. Do you see what I mean? And yeah. I have this all through my life. I have everybody saying to me, this doesn't work. You yeah. know, I did the first... Uh, first program of Faulty Towers, and the, the guy who commissioned it said, you've got to get them out of the hotel law. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been my experience. Oh, I mean, yeah. MGM spent about a month trying to tell me what a terrible title A Fish Called Wanda was. Yeah. Nobody would go and see it. Yeah. The New York Times reviewing Fish Called Wanda said it is not easy to understand this film's accumulating dimness <laughs> or what exactly went wrong. You know, we, we got three Oscars. So, what, uh, nomination, sorry. Uh, so, it, is it, you know, it's quite funny when you begin to realize most people have no idea. Yeah that they have no idea. <laughs> That's the fault, you see. If they said, uh, I don't know, then you can link hands and stumble forward together and listen to each other and come somewhere. It's probably quite good because you're listening to each other and, and sort of weeding out the mistakes. <laughs> but when people really, really think that they know, them, but this is absolutely true. They tried to make 40,000 to an American series three times. 
the last time I met someone at a house party and they said, well, we're from Viacom and we just acquired it. And I thought, ooh, ching, ching, you know, that'll be nice. And, <laughs> and uh, I said, are you having to change it? And they said, no, not really. I said, but what about a small family hotel? Don't most Americans stay in a chain? sort of, of <laughs> hotels, and they said, oh, it's not a problem. We've only done one, one, one change. I said, what was that? They said, we've written Basil out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if they bought the rights to Hamlet, they would have presumably got rid of Hamlet. You know I mean? <laughs> and they have no idea that they have no idea. Absolutely. <laughs> Right. Well, that is the slogan of the left hemisphere. It doesn't know what it is it doesn't know. That's right. And it's awfully sure of itself. Well, and tell them about the Dunning-Kruger effect. Oh, well, I know David Dunning because he was at Cornell when I first went there. He's now gone to Michigan, mm. and I stay in contact with him. And he got... Uh, he did several. I mean, the first thing was he, he, he was interested in self-assessment, how good people were at uh, knowing how good they were at things. And he, um, he discovered that in order to know how good you are at something requires almost exactly the same mental capabilities as it does to be good at that thing in the first place. You see what I mean? If you're a very, very good tennis player, you know exactly how good you are. Do you see what I mean? Um, and uh, there's a lovely corollary there, which is that if you're absolute, you've already got it, haven't you? <laughs> If you're absolutely no good at something, you lack exactly the mental capabilities that you need to realize that you're no fucking good at it. <laughs> and that's the key. Do you see? That's the key. The other thing is that he then did 65 students he got, and he gave them tests on grammar. One was sense of humor, one was mental arithmetic, one was logic. And when he got the scores, he wasn't terribly interested in the scores, but what he was interested in is how well they thought they'd done. And the people who, in reality, had scored on the 10th percentile put themselves on the 67th percentile. And the people on the 90th percentile put themselves on the 77th percentile. So, in reality, there was an 80-point difference. And in their minds, there was a 10-point difference yeah. because the stupid ones had absolutely no idea how stupid they were. <laughs> and the intelligent ones had no idea how stupid they were either. <laughs> so that's, that's a wonderful. It's wonderful. And that's why there's no hope. Because well, <laughs> and there's more, because it's not just experts. It's, it's, the, um, it's, it's all of us, because you, you tell this wonderful thing. Um, uh, in 1990, in 1990, the uh, average attention span was 15 seconds. Now the average attention span of a millennial is six seconds. How long is the attention span of a goldfish? And the answer is nine seconds. <laughs> and, it, and you then say, what hope is there for a society in which we've got an attention span shorter than that of a goldfish? <laughs> 
that's the real, that's why I say there is no hope. There's no way that this can be reversed. I think there have, there's some times when cultures... Oh, I think it can be reversed, yes. You think it can? Oh, yes. All we need oh. to do is switch off all our devices and start reading ah, again. Ah, yes. And talking to one another, yeah. Yes. That would yes. be good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's alarming because the, the, why there is no hope is all about the fact that egos stop us from being sensible. I mean, there's two types of stupidity. You know, there's the stupidity I was telling you about last night. Yes. When, uh, when I, I, want, I got in in New York and I was, I was stretching, this is a few months ago, I was, wanted to stretch. I'd been on one of those horrible uh, planes and the seats are designed by the, the Vietnamese people who used to make those <laughs> bamboo cages for the pilots that they, you know. Uh, and I wanted to just stretch, and then they all started arriving. You see, first of all, a guy knocks on the door and he says, oh, and it's a, uh, the management has sent me a, a plate of fruit because I'm a celebrity, you see. Then there's another knock on the door and somebody, little fellow with a mustache, shouts mini bar, and he runs in. And then a, a, a maid arrives, and she's very nice, but she speaks no known language, you know. So she, so, hurries past you into the bedroom, and you think, is this an optional extra or what? <laughs> and, I, and I finally got them out of the room, and I put up the do not disturb sign, and I closed the door, and I stripped down to my underpants, and I started to stretch on the floor, knock, 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 and I was very cross. And I went to the door, and I thought, if he doesn't, who she doesn't have a good excuse, I'm going to... <laughs> attack them physically, <laughs> and I opened the door, and there was a nice young man out there in hotel uniform who points at the do not disturb sign. I said, I'm sorry to bother you, but is this supposed to be out here? <laughs> the thing about him, is the, the people who always sit there with a sour look on their face and their arms crossed, they always sit near the front. Why don't you sit at the back? <laughs> well, have you ever tried, I'm, I'm afraid I have, talking to a, a room full of philosophers? It's uh, extremely unnerving, because normally people are human beings. Yeah, you, know, you crack a joke, you see a few smiles, and you think, yeah, we're getting there. And you, don't try to crack a joke with a philosopher. And they're all sitting there looking like this. <laughs> And they're trying to think, why is this guy wrong? You know, I mean, th th that is their job. Um, they're, not a, they're not interested in hearing why I might have something to contribute. They're just going, why is this guy wrong? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, wh why are you sitting so near the front? <laughs> But what about, I mean, one of the other It's fascinating that I've got to tell you the strangest audience that I ever played. I was at Cambridge. We did a show that was very successful for two weeks in the local professional theater, and an impresario came and put us into uh, a little theater in London where we eventually ran for six, five months and all finished up in Germany. And um, we had two trial performances before the critics came in, and the first one went rather well. We were very pleased. It was the first time we'd been in London, but they laughed in the right places, and the second night, was the oddest audience I've ever played because they laughed at the punchlines. No, sorry, they didn't laugh at the punchlines. <laughs> they, laughed, they laughed at the setups, 
but not at the punchline. No, and then they'd laugh in the middle of something which wasn't supposed to be funny at all. And mm. then there'd be a, a resounding silence when we got to the funny bit. Yeah. And it really shook us because we had the critics coming in the next day. And at the end of the performance, our, our, our confidence was in shreds. And we, we, we said to the producer, what was that audience? Oh, and he said, well, there's a conference in town and they bought the whole house. And I said, well, what were they? He said, oh, they were psychiatrists. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. <laughs> I love this idea of philosophers sitting there, what is wrong here? Because well, yes. the, the negative frame of mind that I grew up in Cambridge was that if two people were there, one said, I really enjoyed the film, and the other one said, oh, you enjoyed it, did you? <laughs> he was the smarter one. He immediately came out on top. And yes, the negativity yes. seemed to trump any kind of That's right. positivity. Well, he was probably the psychiatrist who refused to laugh, but... Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about two things, if we can, a little bit before we finish. Um, one is um, the, the sort of extraordinarily rigid framework of current science. I, I'm, my problem with, with the scientific culture is that it's not scientific enough. Um, we don't have enough real science. I think science is so important. And the problem is that it's become something like a medieval um, mm. religion. Mm. Um, there are right and wrong answers, which we know ahead of time. And if something looks a little bit different, we don't countenance it at all because it must be wrong. Um, and we sweep it under the carpet. Well, we do. But also, you had this thing where you have a conversation about, um, with, a, with a colleague who's a cardiologist about how for 60 years, they kept telling us that fat was the, the villain. Mm, and then, for heart. And then finally, they discovered that there wasn't a shred of evidence, never had been, to support the entire thing. Now, there are all kinds of science says here and now about things. That... And what, was, what I said, how is this possible? He said something extraordinarily interesting. That's he said, right. because you don't get funding That's it. That's for research that challenges the current paradigm. And you see what I mean? Really, People really just serious. want the current paradigm uh, confirmed again and again and again. And uh, it, it's completely, uh, it's not scientific. And I'm interested in many aspects of the paranormal. A lot of people immediately think you're crazy. And you're only crazy if you believe in the idea that this is a materialist, reductionist universe. Because then it's not possible. I have a friend called Stan Groff, who knows more about LSD. He was brought to America um, to head the research into the uh, effects of LSD. And then the, uh, then the American government uh, made LSD illegal, which put him in an odd place. But he's, he's told me uh, uh, an enormous amount about this. And he told Carl Sagan once of an experience that he had had as a therapist in which a, pa a patient knew had information that he couldn't possibly have got. And Sagan simply said, it couldn't have happened. Do you see what I mean? So that's it. It's really like heresy in medieval church. Uh, there's a guy called Dean Radin, who's the chief yes. scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Mm. Lovely chap. 
and I saw him recently, and uh, two things. I mean, he's fascinated by these things, and he said uh, there was recently in the U.S. Customs that one of their guys kind of went a bit crazy and, and disappeared and was selling guns, and they didn't know where he was. No idea whether he was still in America or not. And the police went to a psychic. And the psychic uh, gave them the name of a small town in Wyoming. Mm. So, being pragmatic policemen, they sent a couple of people up to the small town in Wyoming, and within uh, 48 hours, they arrested the guy. Mm. Now, coincidence? Do you see what I mean? Dickens, uh, sorry, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins would say it was just a... But the, the main thing is he has a book out now called Magic. Hmm. And there's a key page, and I wish I could read it to you, but the woman who is or possibly was until recently in charge of the American uh, Statistical yeah. Association... Yeah. So she was an absolutely top statistician, and she said she'd worked for the government on uh, military, on possibilities of using paranormal stuff. I think it was remote, remote viewing. viewing yeah. And she said that having looked at all this stuff for years, there's absolutely no question that the existence of these paranormal abilities does exist. Uh, this is the statistician. And, and she says it, if it wasn't such a touchy subject, it would have been agreed and settled years ago. But the scientists cannot allow this because it would destroy their theory of what reality is. Well, yes. I mean, the point, I think, is I don't know whether these things exist or not. I think there's a very good chance that they do. But I, I really don't know. But what is totally unscientific is to decide ahead of time. The whole way in which science moves yeah. forward is by saying, well, here's something that doesn't fit our paradigm. You can react in two ways. Mm. You can say we reject it because it doesn't fit the paradigm, in which case we'd, we'd have made no progress ever in science. Or you say, actually, this is interesting and anomalous. Let's find out. The only way you can do that is by doing research. But nowadays, anyone who expressed the slightest interest in that or anything much m less touchy than that, they wouldn't get going on a career. And by the time they're established in a career, they're so invested in what it is they are saying that they don't want to start saying that. So nobody ever hears about the other possibilities. Yeah, I had a lovely thing that Einstein said, and I only heard this a month ago. He said, if when we started doing research, we knew what we were going to find, it wouldn't be research. <laughs> but of course, people who give grants tend to be bureaucrats, and they want to know what this research is going to turn up. And people are so sure. I mean, in 1900, Lord Kelvin, who was a great physicist, said something to the effect of there's nothing new to be discovered in physics now. We're just arguing about the third decimal point. And three years later, uh, Einstein comes up with relativity. <laughs> and what was interesting, not he said, he didn't say this is what we think at this point. He said there is nothing more to be discovered in physics yeah, yeah. apart, <clears throat> it turned out, from relativity. It's always I mean, a <laughs> dangerous thing to predict the future. <laughs> what? A dangerous thing to predict the future. Yes. Yeah, but, uh, you, that, that, that sort of uh, 
that cast of mind is somewhat literalistic and in a way it sort of automatically rules out of court the idea that there might be something other than what we already can pin down with facts. That's right. And you and I both think that metaphors and narratives and non-literal meaning are hugely important. Well, this extraordinary guy used to teach English at Oxford. <laughs> so I want, tell me about metaphor. Well, uh, I may talk about it tomorrow. But, oh. but, but what I wanted to uh, remind you of is one of your, I don't know if it was your, uh, better lines in the life of Brian. There's a, a crowd of people who've come together to hear, there is a Jesus as well as Brian, isn't there, I think. There's a what? Isn't there a Jesus as well as Brian? Oh, there's a real Jesus. There's real it's Jesus. all going on over there at, over the, there. Same, at the same there's time. An over there, away from Brian, there are a crowd of people gathering around, there's so many of them, they're all kind of talking amongst themselves. People going, shh, you know, what did he say? He said, blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> and the one goes, oh, why? What's special about cheesemakers? I don't particularly like cheese. And somebody else turns to this, this person and says, um, don't take it so literally. It means anyone in, involved in, in selling dairy products. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the main problem is that when you come, you know, the, the, the furthest we get from literalism in the way in which we look at life mm. is to go, well, don't be so literal. It means anybody who pervades dairy products. Well, you see, I've been wondering about this <clears throat> for a long time because I'm fascinated about the fundamentalists, the fundamentalists of all kinds in every religion. I'm even sad to say there's fundamentalists in Buddhism now, apparently, which I never knew. Well, Myanmar. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, but everywhere else. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm getting tired. Um, literalism. How, how is it possible to take Jesus's teaching literally if he taught in parables. No. <laughs> well, no, that's right. Do you see what I mean? Well, you make, a very, a, you make a very serious point. You say Christ was a mystic. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't a purveyor of, of, of logical propositions. But he's been turned by the usual bureaucratic mentality of the early church. Well, for a few years, a couple of hundred years, mystics flourished, but then yeah. it all became solidified into a kind of Roman code of, of eight impossible things to believe. And uh, you said, if only at school one had known something about a spirituality that was not of this kind. Yes. And, and a, a close bond for both of us is, is Alan Watts, because you said it was reading Tao, The Watercourse Way, that really opened your eyes. And it was what opened mine too, actually. Really? Yes. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It was the first time I really thought there might be something in this. Yeah. I mean, I went through confirmation when I was 15, and I had a really quite a confidence that the sort of golden haze would descend on me. <laughs> and when it didn't... Nothing happened. <laughs> when it didn't, I just was very disappointed and rather turned my back on the whole thing. And then yes. you gradually... The, the key thing for me was... Did you was, say to the bishop, how was it for you? <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me of when I met the Dalai Lama for the first time. I was pressed into meeting him and I said, I'm not a proper Buddhist, but they insisted. Mm. So when I walked up to the Dalai Lama um, mm. with my daughter. Um, 
I, I thought, <laughs> what do you say to the Dalai Lama? <laughs> sort of, how is this particular incarnation going? <laughs> or, <laughs> where did you get those sandals? I mean, what is and we didn't say anything, I mean, it was lovely. We just looked at each other and then after about five or 10 seconds, we just started to laugh. And we laughed and laughed and my daughter laughed and I laughed and the Dalai Lama laughed and after a time I said, thank you very much, you should be there. That was pure Zen. Pure Zen, that's yes. right, pure Zen. How wonderful. And how different from, you quote somewhere some marvelous chap in Bournemouth or somewhere, a Rinpoche, who, <laughs> who was saying, um, Buddhism helps you get one step ahead. Oh, no, that was, <laughs> that was no, no, that was um, Fish Called Wanda. Because uh, I Buddhism got, gives you the competitive edge. That's right. I, I got a magazine called Los Angeles Magazine. There was a double spread thing for this guy who, who was called Zen Buddhist Master Rama. And he looked like a rather uncertain assistant in a pharmacy, except that his hair looked like late-season dandelion. Do you know what I mean? A bit like Steve Pinker's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and splashed across the headline at the top of this, because this guy was giving a seminar, was Buddhism gives you the competitive edge. <laughs> and that's how I got the idea for Otto, someone who'd, who'd, who'd written everything and understood nothing. But there's something about the science at the moment that I think it's, it's, it's killing its... How can I put it? it? It's trying to make science something that it isn't. Mm. And if anybody queries it, like, um, who was the guy, uh, Nagel, Nadel, philosopher? Oh, uh, Thomas Nagel. Thomas Nagel yeah. wrote an extraordinarily interesting book mm. about this dichotomy between, you know, the yeah. type of science and, and looking almost for a third way. Yeah. And Tinker, absolutely slaughtered him. Mm. Wasn't you, know, this is a great philosopher, and instead of saying, well, I don't agree, but, mm. he just slaughtered him. What, well, is it, the, what is it that's so intolerant? Uh, yes, well, it's the arrogance, isn't it? Yeah. Um, one thing we miss in a secular society is something to put us in our place. Um, I like very much your reflection on your cat, Wensley, which comes in the book. Do you still have a cat called Wensley? No. Oh. Do you know, I'm oh. going to spoil our evening. He was bisected on a railway line. Oh. I know, one of the worst oh. moments of my life. Follow that one, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, well, you say about him perfectly correctly. You know, I think that probably I know a few things that Wensley doesn't know. By the way, I'd like to say that Wensley probably knew a few things that you don't yes, know. Yes, he did. But, but still, the fact is there are differences in intellect and levels of intellect, aren't there? And so, you know, the idea that we know everything now at this stage of evolution is quite extraordinary. Um, but it's the, it's the passion with which people, when Jane Goodall first went to, 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 to uh, yeah. Oxford, her colleagues are positively scornful of the idea, her idea that uh, uh, animals might share some emotions with us. Yeah, yeah. They're just uh, they were insulting about it, on yeah. anthropomorphism yeah. and all this. And of course, yeah. they're completely wrong. Yeah. 
And it's fascinating. I know Paul Ekman, you know? I do. The guy who teaches the FBI how to know whether people are Read faces, yeah. yeah. Mm. And he had the same experience, because uh, the scientists, social scientists, had decided that all emotions were socially conditioned. Mm. And he went around the world showing photographs to people mm. in like Papua New Guinea, and they immediately recognized the yeah, expressions. Yeah, yeah. So he, he actually proved Darwin was right, which yeah, was yeah. that those, the, the, the recognition of human emotion is something built into us, not the, something that's socially conditioned. And, we, and oddly enough, we actually even react to music in the same way. Yeah. So that Norwegians, who don't know anything about Indian raga, um, when listening to the music, quite correctly identify what an Indian would identify as the emotion and vice versa. But it is quite interesting. These things are not just socially conditioned. They're quite deep in us. But why do because the people we're who say it's... We're sort of flows, aren't we, of our past? Yes, parties. of course. But why do the people who, are so, who say that there's no such thing as social... Why, why are they so sure? I mean, I had dinner once with Stephen Jay Gould, which was a great experience. Yeah, yeah particularly as Richard Dawkins was there at the time. <laughs> so they didn't fight, which was very nice. But he told me, it was very, very pleasant, but he told me about four books, the next four he was going to write. And he took me through each one and told me about the structure of the book. And how he was, it was extraordinarily impressive. And I said, but now, <clears throat> assuming there is a God, if he sat down with you now and said to you, what one thing do you not understand that you'd really like to understand? And Stephen Jay Gould said, nothing really. God. Wow. Uh, yeah. Well, it's the belief, isn't it, that we will find it if we keep digging down. And of course, the further down you dig, the more you find the same little tiny nine particles. It doesn't tell you very much. And this, I want to end, because I think we ought to wrap up, yeah, but I want really. to end with, you say, um, I'll just put it this way around, in the, as we dig now, you know, for example, decoding the human genome, a phenomenal work for which we must all be very grateful. Almost nothing is explained by it. And, <laughs> and when you, so you've done all this work, You've got these thousands of things, and it reminds me of this, this moment in uh, Forty Towers, which is your favorite moment in Forty Towers. You confess that in the book, and it's mine. Actually, no, my favorite one is when, in the same episode where you go off screen and re reappear with a tree <laughs> and thrash the car, going, you vicious bastard. But anyway, but there's this moment where, um, as you remember, um, the chef has fallen in love with um, Manuel That's and got true. completely drunk and failed to produce the duck. Yeah. And so uh, you go off into the town to Andres, you get the duck and it's all marvelous. And you come back with this, with this silver salver with the lid on and you've got this ha 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 look on your face. You push the trolley in and you go, sorry about the wait, but now you'll be getting this wonderful duck. I'm sure you it'll be worth it. You take the lid off and there is a blancmange. And, and you sort of look at it, and you go, and you start scrabbling with your hands, <laughs> looking for the duck. And then you go, duck's off. Well, I think that's a, quite a good note <laughs> to end. And a bit of a parable about reductionism. <laughs> duck's off. <laughs> Thank you.
You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.